This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host Jen Wilkin and JT English. And today we are also joined by Courtney Doctor. Courtney is an author, Bible teacher, conference and retreat speaker who received an MDiv from Covenant Theological Seminary and is also the author of From Garden to Glory, a Bible study on the Bible story, Steadfast, a devotional Bible study on the book of James, and the soon-to-be-released, February 2022, In View of God's Mercies, the Gift of the Gospel in Romans. She also currently serves as the coordinator of Women's Initiatives for the Gospel Coalition. Courtney, we're glad to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, this is quite the CV here, Courtney. I was like running through it and I was like, man, there's a lot here. I, I got to tell you, um, I'm very excited about this uh, upcoming Bible study you're releasing in view of God's mercies. What was the kind of drive behind that? Like, I mean, it seems like you've done other Bible studies before. Why did you jump into doing this one now? Great question. Part of it was just the opportunity to do it. Um, I'm hugely honored to be able to tackle a book like Romans. and But I think the joy in it is um, getting to look at Romans in this, I mean, just doing it in nine sessions to be able to stay with sort of this high-level overview. I mean, we go through every passage, so so we're moving through. We're not just doing selected passages, but but to be able to keep the the big picture of the letter of Romans in view um, as we as we go through it, and to see it in some ways as a missions mobilization letter that Paul was writing. He's inviting mm. them to join him on mission. So um, that was a fun fun part of writing it for sure. Okay, but not everyone who has an MDiv is able to write a Bible study. So I want, Courtney's my friend, just full disclosure. And not everyone who can write a Bible study has an MDiv. So there you go. It goes both ways. Well, yeah, praise God for that. Um, But I, I want everyone to kind of hear what your path was to becoming someone who cares about writing Bible studies and how, you know, how did, how were you equipped for that role? Well, I think I, I really didn't come to know the Lord until my kind of early to mid-20s. And one of just the most, just the thing he did, you know, right away was give me this huge hunger for his word. And and I was in a church where a pastor said, hey, I think I see teaching gifts, which is terrifying to somebody who barely knows the word and is in her 20s. And he gave me these opportunities and kind of taught me how to teach. And so I was, I was teaching the Bible and and wanted further equipping, um, whether that's formal theological education or informal theological education, I wanted more of it. And my husband at the time, and we're in our 40s at this point, and he is running a couple ministries. He kept saying, well, maybe I'm getting called to go to seminary. And I kept thinking, no, we're not being called to go to seminary. But we finally (laughs) agreed that we were being called to go to seminary. And so we literally sold the farm. We were living on 15 acres. So we sold the farm, moved to St. Louis, and did seminary together. Yeah. So it was just the desire for further equipping. So for Craig, it was a 180-degree turn professionally. He was in corporate finance, and now he's a pastor. But for me, it was just more tools in the tool belt kind of along the road of what I was already doing. I love that. I love that. And we're glad that you're here. And your interest in Romans is mirrored by our interest in Romans. And so it's exciting to have you on. You've been diving in deep to Romans as you prepare this Bible study. We've been diving in deep in this first season, uh, and we'll be continuing that next season as well. But today we're looking at Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. Uh, and uh, listen, I think I asked JT to read this last time. Jen, would you read for us just Romans 6, 1 through 4, and then we can jump in? You good with yeah, that? Yeah, I'd love to. Romans 6, 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus 
were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There we go. So we've seen Paul make use of this question. We see him kind of make use of these rhetorical questions throughout Romans. What shall we say then? Right? It's kind of an interesting like device that he uses. He uses these rhetorical questions throughout Romans to kind of advance his argument. But maybe, Courtney, maybe you could help us here. Where is Paul coming from? Why is he even anticipating this objection? Why is he answering this question at this point? Well, part of it is just that it's right on the heels of, of 520. So, you know, the chapter and verse <laughs> um, delineations that we have obviously are not um, part of the original word. And so he had written verse 20, which says, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so that verse, you could just pull that out and say, wait a minute, you know? So does that mean that the more we sin, the more grace is, you know, grace is abundantly increasing at the same time? Because if that's true, then by golly, let's just go sin all the more. Uh, so part of it is just right on the heels of, of 520, but it's also in response to everything that he's been saying up until this point. I mean, he has just hammered over and over and over again that that we are justified or we are made righteous by faith alone. And, and it's always been this way, right? That's chapter four. Abraham didn't didn't work for it, didn't earn it. Um, David didn't nullify it. That that this justification, the salvation, has always been by faith. And verse five has just been: it's a free gift. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. Um, and these things that come as a ramification of your justification. I mean, they're all given to you freely in Christ. And so the natural question I think that would arise after hearing that for five chapters is, you know, well then why do I need to stop sinning? In fact, right. maybe in light of verse 20, let's sin all the more because then grace is going to abound all the more. Yeah, and it's such a shrewd pastoral move. And you see these moves throughout Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And though he's never been there, he's got that pastoral intuition to kind of anticipate. You know what this really reminds me of? I was thinking about it. It reminds me of the kind of reformed, old, uh, like Puritan approach to preaching, which is that you state the truth and you anticipate the objection. Like that model yeah. of preaching. I feel like Tim Keller does this really well too. Mm -hmm. Oh, he does. He's, he's a master of it. But like that model of going like, okay, I'm going to state this thing. And you see it in the old Puritan sermons where it's just like, here's the truth. Here's the objection. Here's the answer to the objection. Here's the next truth. Here's the objection. Here's the anticipation. And it's like here, Paul knows, just like you said, Courtney, he knows, okay, if they've misheard this, or maybe the Gentiles might run into licentiousness, or maybe the, the Jews might run into, kind of, they might think, oh my gosh, Paul has completely abandoned the notion of obedience rendered unto Yahweh. But here he's going, no, 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 no. It, let me clarify. Let me just make it clear to you. I, this is the middle way. This is the faithful way right through here. I was just going to say, I think he's he's definitely, he's a little on the defensive here mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. because back in 3.8, he said, and why not do evil the good may come as mm -hmm. some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. And, and that's all he says back in chapter three. And so right. now he's built out his idea and he's like, and also if you Jewish Christians who are so into the law think that what I'm saying is that grace is all we need, Shut your face, except he doesn't say it quite that way. <laughs> <laughs> 
I kind of wish he did. Yeah, that, I mean, we would be, it'd be a memorable verse. It'd probably be on most <laughs> bumper stickers. But like something interesting that he does here as a rhetorical device, you're right, Jenny does it in 3.8. He does it again in 3.3. Three, three. Mm-hmm. He, he never like, he doesn't anticipate the question and then, and then say, well, you're, you're kind of right. Yeah. Let me nuance it. He says, <laughs> by no means. Right. right. It's a, and in, in Greek terminology, like there, there's not a more forceful way to say no way. Like that is not, that is categorically not what he's saying. And so I, I, again, I find that interesting because it helps us get a real sense of clarity about what he is trying to communicate with us, uh, to us, because he takes you to where the logical argument might lead you and he cuts you off at the pass and says, don't go any further. By no means, that's not what I'm saying. And then he continues his argument. Mm-hmm. I also think back to what you said, Kyle, just this whole idea that he engages the skeptic, he engages the scoffer. He he pulls mm. them in, and in some ways, mm. like he's giving voice to their questions, and he's he's turning that. I mean, he's welcoming them in in some ways, right? I mean, it's very clear, like you said, JT. I mean, he he cuts them off at the pass, but even by giving voice to the question, he's and and you said Tim Keller does this so well, like he's inviting the the scoffer, the unbeliever, he's inviting the opposition in a way that he then turns it into this teaching moment, and I I think that's a beautiful model for us. I mean, he doesn't shy away from the truth, but he's like, let's talk about these things that that would arise in your own heart and your own mind as objections. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as he moves forward in verse two, uh, you can hear him say, hey, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And then do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So I think maybe one thing that maybe could be misunderstood here is, should we understand this to mean that if you are a Christian, you can't sin? And if you sin, you couldn't possibly be a Christian because he states it pretty emphatically. One, for the casual reader, when he says by no means, he's using like a very intense Greek form of the negative here. It's basically like, it's basically like, no, no, no. Okay. It's like a, it's an intense way, a very clear way, a confident way of saying no to the rhetorical or to the question he's asked. But then he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So are we to understand here that, listen, if you're a Christian, you can't sin. And if you sin, you couldn't possibly be a Christian because how could we who died to sin still live in it? Is that what Paul's getting at here? Because if so, that's bad news. Because I probably, I've been up for like, you know, seven or eight hours and I've probably sinned already today. So, you know, what's, Pro- what's probably. the scoop here? I have. <laughs> Just probably. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. And it took you seven or eight hours. I'm impressed. Yeah. yeah. We need to get Kyle a healthier doctrine of sin. Yeah. But whatever. <laughs> so is that what Paul's saying? Is Paul saying I'm not a Christian because I sinned this morning? He is absolutely not okay. saying that. He is Great. not saying that we are going to be perfectly sinless um, in, you know, in this life. In fact, now you all might debate this when you get to Romans 7, but I think he goes on in the next chapter to actually talk about his own struggle. I think it's autobiographical. I think he's going to talk about his own struggle with sin. And he says, you know, for the good, I, you know, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And so, so yeah, even Paul is like bringing that to the table that he, um, he is still struggling with sin. But what I think Paul is saying in chapter six is that our relationship to sin has categorically changed that there is a that we are in this new relationship with sin, which I let Brad Matthews, one of my professors, used to say that when we talk about chapter six, um, we're evaluating what it means to be human on a metric that we weren't supposed to have. It wasn't supposed to be our metric. Mm. Like sin is not the reference point that that defines who we are. And yet I think what Paul is saying here is that we do have to understand who we are. And, and that whole, you know, the whole rubric about understanding our relationship to sin in the meta narrative of scripture. So, you know, that we were created able to sin, but we didn't have to. And then 
as soon as the fall, the rebellion occurs, then we're, you know, not able to not sin. And that's how we're born. And that's in Adam, which is what he's just finished talking about. But in Christ, when we're born again, when we're, you know, transferred into the new kingdom and and made alive in Christ, when we're at all these things that he's going to go on to talk about, baptized in Christ, buried with Christ, died with Christ, raised with Christ, we have a categorically different relationship with sin now. We are We are able to not sin. And that's just a just a beautiful thing. So one scholar said, we need not say I will never sin again, but we can say I need not sin now. At this moment, Mm, I am free not to sin. I'm glad you took that, Courtney. That was really good. (laughs) We were waiting. I'm like, yeah, okay, you you crushed that. (laughs) I was just hoping somebody was going to tell me I was still a Christian. Okay, I just needed... You know, confession of sin, assurance of pardon, guys. That's the dynamic. And I I confess the sin, but there was the assurance of pardon was a little slow in coming. So, uh, but we got it eventually. Thank you to our. I'm I'm purely Protestant in every relationship that I have, except for for you. I want you to be hanging on the edge of your assurance. Oh yeah, I I know you do. I know you do. Well, Paul moves on to here to talk about something. He goes, "Do you not?" He uses an image. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ Jesus? That, that, that idea of baptism into Christ, that, I mean, you think about baptism in water, but you don't necessarily think about being baptized into Christ Jesus. So what's going on here, JT? What's happening? I mean, it's this idea. I mean, you think about, um, well, every, every time I think of this passage, and I would love the the Roman scholar that's on the call to tell me I'm wrong, but one of the first metaphors or pictures or Bible stories that comes to mind is Jesus with John the Baptist. Uh, This is what John chapter or Matthew chapter three, I think, where he says, there's somebody coming who's like, I'm baptizing you with water, but there's one who is going to come to baptize you with fire. I can't even hold the sandals. And what we see is in Jesus in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, his, his whole complete work is Jesus is now ascended to the right hand of the father. And I love Athanasius on, on this. He talks about how one of his apologetics for the resurrection and ascension of Christ is conversion, regeneration. He says, we can know that Jesus Christ is alive and well because people are coming to know him. How are they coming to know him? Is it because of our great apologetics? Is it because of our wonderful sermons or great podcasts like Knowing Faith? He says, no, it's because Jesus is baptizing people into himself through the Holy Spirit. This is this new birth that we see in, with Jesus talking to Nicodemus in John chapter three, this, this being born again. How can I be born again if I've already come out from my mother's womb? Well, you have to be baptized or born by the Spirit. I think that's, that's what's going on here. Paul is saying, Jesus is alive and well. He has conquered sin through the cross. He is now empowering you to overcome sin because he's given you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that gift is what gives you new life and is what kills you to your old self, by the way. That's why the power of sin is broken as dead people can't keep, can't keep sinning in terms of its power over them. Uh, but he's also giving you this life in the Holy Spirit, which is this baptism into this new family of God, the church. I think that's well said. Courtney, would you add anything to that? No, I thought that was beautiful. I think that, you know, what you're pointing to, JT, is is probably what we're going to talk about in a little bit, but it's definitely pointing to our union with Christ, right? I mean, it's our it's our identification mm-hmm. with Christ, his identification with us, and that um that that baptism is the shadow of the of the truer reality, which is that we really have been united yeah. to Christ. 
The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Do you ever get stuck wondering how to study a Bible passage? The Courage for Life Study Bibles for Women and the Courage for Life Study Bibles for Men have over 1,400 Bible studies. That's a Bible study on every page of Bible text. Access to the Filament Bible app lets you dive even deeper. If you download the app and you scan the page number, you can open up a world of resources, including over 25,000 additional study notes, hundreds of videos, and a full audio Bible. Start discovering at courageforlifebible.com. That's courageforlifebible.com for incredible study notes and an incredible study Bible. We talked about this a, a little bit in a previous episode, but Israel is given this new identity in their baptism through the Red Sea and then crossing yeah. the Jordan River, and they're, they're now called God's son. This is Israel living in the land, and now as we get to Romans chapter 8 in a few weeks, we will see that we now are heirs adopted according to the promise because we've been baptized into him, and we receive not an inheritance of land, but the inheritance of God himself. That's so beautiful. Yeah, and our baptism baptism into Christ Jesus isn't an individual identity thing either. Is it just like it was for Exodus and the Exodus event through the Red Sea? Uh, I think baptism is one of the clearer signs of our uh, incorporation into Christ Jesus, uh, meaning that we don't we enter in as uh, as a stra- we we, are, we have been strangers. Now we are sons and daughters, and baptism is also a divine symbol and ordinance to demonstrate that we now have a new family. So we have not just are identified with Christ in his historical work, namely death and resurrection, but we have now been incorporated into all of whom are in the family. And baptism is a corporate act, I believe. At least it's a picture of our incorporation into Jesus. Um, and I think that's part of what Paul's getting at here. But we've been talking about union with Christ. You know, it's come up now two or three times. Just like, what is a good, what's a good picture definition of union with Christ? Oh, if you want a good picture of it, I, it's not mine, but I have it and I absolutely love it. Have you ever read Roy Shiner's explanation on union with Christ? Oh yeah. I'm going to read it. Absolutely. It's so good. It's so helpful. He says, firstly, to be fair, it's just a hard idea to get your head around. I mean, what does it mean exactly to be in Christ? And then he goes on, if someone tells me I follow Christ, I get that. Under Christ, yes, I know, you know, inspired by Christ. But he says, imagine yourself at the airport about to board a plane. The plane is on its way to sunny Melbourne and Melbourne is where you want to be. What relationship do you need to have with the plane at this point. And he talks about all the different relationships you could have. And he's like, no, you don't need to, you know, be inspired by it or follow it. You need to be, you need to be in the plane. And he says, why? Because Mm. by being in the plane, what happens to the plane will also happen to you. The question, did you Mm. get to Melbourne will be part of the larger question. Did the plane get to Melbourne? And if the answer to the 
second question is yes, and you were in the plane, then what happened to the plane will have also happened to you. And so I think that's just such a beautiful picture of our union with Christ because that's the whole point. I mean, it's it's when we're in Christ that all that he's done, all that he's accomplished, those become ours too. And so it's, it's our mm-hmm. salvation. He saves us by uniting us to himself in a way that what has happened to him, it's everything Paul's talking about in this chapter, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his victory yeah. over sin, but it's in Christ that those are ours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that illustration is so rich. And I think that is a part of what Paul is getting at in verses five and following. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we're in Christ Jesus, if we're in the plane, so to speak, we are in both the death and the resurrection. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Where? In Christ Jesus. And I think this is incredibly important because this is one of the clearest examples where you have the historical events of Christ, the, uh, the, you know, his actual death and resurrection uh, tied to the saving benefits and that the bridge there is union. And it, sometimes when we, in systematic theology, we'll distinguish between the ordo salutis and the historio salutis, historio salutis being history of salvation accomplished, ordo salutis being salvation accomplished and applied. It's kind of two different ways of looking at the same thing. Typically, historio salutis, um, actually, uh, we have a, a great Presbyterian theologian to help thank for some of this, which is Richard <laughs> Gaffin, who is, I, I'm just, I, I want to show you my Presbyterian credentials, it's, Courtney, it's, over and over again. Really cool. I, so we I call do like it. I just, <laughs> yeah, I just, I, I just, I, 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 I want to speak in a tongue that you will understand. Um, oh but, my uh, gosh. Uh, but, <laughs> but Richard, Richard Gaffin was the first person to demonstrate this to me, which is that oftentimes we do not know how the saving benefits of Christ actually tie to the actual work of Christ. Like we talk about save, being saved and experiencing salvation completely independent from the actual events of Christ's life. And yet here, Paul is drawing a very firm line. Because Christ died and rose again, if you are in him, you die to sin and, re- and are uh, raised to new life. It, you take one of those away, you take those historical events away, there's nothing. It, it doesn't happen. Salvation can only be applied because salvation has been accomplished. Well, well, let me let me ask you this, Courtney. Let me, you know, I've I've made light of it, but genuinely, let me ask you this question: um, how, how do we consider ourselves dead to sin? Like, what 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 does that mean to consider oneself dead to sin? That's what we're supposed to do. We must consider ourselves dead to sin. How? What what does that even entail? Well, that's kind of the big question of the passage, right? I mean, this is really the first, mm-hmm. what I'd say, the first real command that Paul's given us in Romans. And so it's in verse 11, and, and you know, he said, you, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. And I think it's just worth noting that Paul's not telling us to die to sin. Um, that's already happened. That's, it's actually not something we do. We don't actually die to sin. It's something that's already been done to us, been done for us. What he's telling us, 
volunteers to do. The command, the imperative is consider um, or reckon or count. And that word is actually used 19 times in, in Romans. And almost exclusively, it's, it's in relationship to what has been reckoned to us, what has been counted to us. And so, so far, we've already heard that righteousness has been counted um, to us by faith alone in Christ alone. And so now what he's telling us to do, and he says, you already are, if you've been united to Christ, you've, these things are true of you because of the accomplished salvation, because of what's happened historically, Christ has already died. He's already, mm-hmm. um, you know, been resurrected. He's already ascended. He already has victory over Christ. And so if you're in Christ, you have actually already died to sin. And so what you need to do now is you need to have it be such an abiding conviction, you know, that you regard yourself as dead to sin, that that's how you accurately see yourself. And so the argument in verses one through 11 is Jesus has defeated sin and death. He rules over them. You've been united to him. You live in him. Therefore, the victory over sin and death is already yours. Um, that it's not just, and that our salvation is not just for the age to come. You know, it's not just Jesus died to take me to heaven one day, but mm-hmm. Jesus died. Mm-hmm. Our salvation is now. It's today. He died to set us free from our sins today. Yeah. So I love um, one of the things that came out when I was preparing to teach this was that the idea of consider and reckon and count, which is one that I really enjoy talking about. It's pointing a little toward, it's pointing a lot toward what we're going to hear in Romans 12, 1 and 2. You don't consider, reckon and count with your feelings. You consider and reckon <laughs> and count with your mind. And um, that what a lot of what the call here is, is, hey, you need to really meditate on, you need to think about this. You need to think hard about what it means that you are in Christ. And um, so, you know, there's that statement, um, our feelings are real, but they're not reliable. And I think so many of us um, battle um, doubt or shame or guilt because Mm -hmm. we are relying on feeling a particular way about our union with Christ. Um, Our union with Christ is a fact, and, uh, and it's worth reckoning on. Um, mm. It has been counted to us that we are in Christ. And so I like, you know, the idea that there's a little bit of math going on here, and we we need to we need to we need to run the math, so so to speak, on on the nature of our relationship with Christ. Um, I have perhaps said before that the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. I said and that. I, I think this <laughs> is an opportunity. Actually, uh, actually, if you go back and read some of the early stuff I was writing at seven or eight, I actually said that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're just looking well, for attribution, Jen. I'm pretty sure that I was ripping off um, uh, R.C. Sproul and Augustine simultaneously when I adapted that to my own uses. But uh, never mind that. Um, the, the point would be that right thinking informs right feeling. Mm-hmm. And I think right. we're seeing mm-hmm. a call here to right thinking. He's saying, yeah. think on these things. Mm-hmm. These are important yeah. things to think about. And um, and it's a good emphasis that he brings in right before he makes a significant turn in the book of Romans. Mm-hmm. Um, because when we get to verse 12, a new thing happens, right, Courtney? Well, and I was just going to say, have you counted how many times, I haven't, but how many times he's already said in this passage what we're to know? Like, know these things, know these things, know these things. I mean, just just mm-hmm. affirming everything you just said, that's exactly what he's saying. Like, you need to know that you've been baptized with Christ, and you've been baptized into his death, and you need to know that you've been um, raised with Christ. I mean, and that's exactly it. And then I would even add to what you just said, Jen, not only do right, does right thinking lead to right feeling, but hopefully to right action. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. that's where he's 
going with this, that, yeah. that right belief is meant to result in right action. Um, and the mm-hmm. right action in this one is to believe that we are truly dead to sin at this moment. Yeah. Yeah. I'm counting all the no's now. So I've got, I've got at least three of them leading up to consider, which is so good. And that's why, and so then he makes this turn in verse 12, where really for the first time in Romans, he moves from the indicative to the imperative in a way that we've not seen before. Um, He's saying, if this is true, then this is what you should do. Uh, But his appeal is first to our minds. And I think that's Mm -hmm. significant because we think that our behavior changes when we feel differently. So we try to feel differently so that we'll behave differently but we feel differently by thinking differently. Right. Um, and so our, our right thinking leads to right feeling, which leads to right doing. And I think he set us up beautifully for that. Yeah, because in verse 12, he does really come in pretty strong, right? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. You know, here you're right. There is a sense in which uh, Paul moves towards the application or deployment of these truths. And he actually uses a very similar paradigm that he's been advancing in 6, 1 through 11. It's like Christ has died and rose again. That is now not just what has happened to you, meaning it's now essentially who you are, one who has died in Christ and risen with Christ. It's now existentially what's expected of you, that you're going to put to death the things that are unrighteous, and you're going to put to life the things that are righteous. So you're, the grounds of mortification is the crucifixion of Christ. Hmm. The ground of vivification is the resurrection of Christ. Mm-hmm. The paradigm here is you are in Christ. Christ did these things. They've been credited to your account on that foundation. Mm-hmm. Now you go do likewise. Yeah, and I love, I love even, Jen, what you said about Paul's making this big shift in, you know, he's moving from the indicatives to the imperatives. And it's really interesting because in this passage, he just gives us, in that, in that 12 through 14, he gives us these little teasers, these little glimpses of when he's really going to make the shift in his letter, which is at, in chapter 12. So, you know, that's the big division of the letter, the first 11 chapters and then 12 through 16. And so, but we hear so much of the same language in these little verses that he's beginning to give us the teaser of this. All these things that I'm telling you to be true, they are going to be lived out, and they're going to be lived out in these ways of presenting yourself for righteousness and and not for unrighteousness. And then, Kyle, you know what you were saying, like that that death and resurrection life. uh, We had a professor that used to say that's the heartbeat of the Christian life, like the bump, 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 and it's you know Mm -hmm. death life. and that, that we die to things and we live to things, and that that's the constant call. Like we're called to die to pride and live to humility or die to um, unwholesome talk and live to edifying speech or, or die to sexual immorality and live to purity. Like it's the heartbeat of the Christian life is this death and resurrection um, that Paul's beginning to point out right here, that we, that we die to certain things and we live to certain things in Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Yeah. I, I, so just moving from this, you know, first 11 verses now to here, 12 through 15, one of the things, or 12 through 14, one of the, I think just important lessons to learn about doing theology that we just see modeled here is, is this idea that 
theology always precedes ethics, or to put it the way Jen just did, uh, the indicative always precedes the imperative. However, theology remains incomplete until it begins to express itself in the Christian life or ethically. And that's exactly what Paul is demonstrating for us here, and that we should then demonstrate as theologians, as we're grounded in what we know, we're grounded in what in what we know to be true about the gospel, but that then leads both to right thinking, right feeling, right living. And that that's what Paul's doing here. So theology should always lead to this practical life of growing in our love and knowledge of God. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Well, uh, Courtney, is there any stone we've left unturned here? Anything that you feel like, oh man, we can't get out of Romans 6, 1 through 14 without saying this? Man, that's a great question. I'm sure there are lots and lots. Um, I think this, just to hit the fact of, or the question about, you know, legalism is, is Paul, you know, where is he pushing Mm -hmm. us? Where is he beginning to push us? And, and just to say that the pursuit of holiness is not legalism. Legalism is the pursuit of holiness in, as a means of receiving salvation or as as a means of receiving merit, but we're meant to strive towards holiness. We're meant to live out by grace. What is, what did Dr. Carson call it? Grace-driven effort. Um, That that's how we Mm -hmm. apply. That's how we believe. That's how we, we strive while we rest in our union with Christ, but that we we actively pursue holiness because we can, um, which is which is the new thing about us. Uh, we couldn't do it before, but in Christ, we actually can. We're actually made able to pursue the holiness that we were created to have. That's so good. I love that. I'm surprised, Kyle and JT, you haven't jumped on the dominion theme here. Well, I, that is something that I was going to pick up in our next episode, this oh. idea of right. <laughs> Of reigning and of reigning and dominion, because we do get a lot of reigning language here, and this is probably I would say Romans six is one of the places we get the same theme in Romans seven, although it becomes real personalized in Paul's conversation. But we do get a lot of battle, kind of battle, kingdom, dominion imagery here. It's almost like trench warfare a little bit in Romans six between the reign of sin and death and the reign of righteousness, and then Romans seven begins like a playing out of that on the personal psychological landscape mm-hmm. of Paul as well. But you're right. It's all over there. And it's kind of unique because the language, Romans 6, 7, and 8, you hear it. It's like Romans 6, he introduces it. Romans 7, he plays it out psychologically. And then Romans 8 is like the triumph of God and his glory and grace over the whole battlefield. It's kind yeah. of a, I don't, it's an interesting kind of a paradigm. He gets, we only really get it in Romans 6, 7, and 8. It's not that imagery isn't really used throughout the rest of the letter. Mm. And do you think it's also tying back to the idea that we were created to rule and subdue and with the entrance of sin into the cosmos that we instead are ruled and subdued and then once again we're restored in Christ to ruling and subduing? Well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, think a, I think a huge tragedy. I, I, you know, honestly, if I was not... I'm just riffing on this right now, so I just would say like I wouldn't Aren't publish we all doing on this. Could go wrong, yeah. <laughs> but I, I would say that when we read in verse 14, "For sin will have no dominion over you," I, I'm I'm not going to say one to one correspondence, but I am going to say I think that behind every Israelite's understanding of dominion in this way is the idea that in creation that dominion was inverted at the fall. Yep. Every single time it gets brought up, I think that in the, I'm not saying it's one-to-one, I'm just saying in the canonical imagination, in the biblical imagination, they're going, 
part of sin's tragedy is that they were supposed to cultivate and subdue the creaturely and the creation in the fall itself, the actual event that is inverted and they're subdued and dominated by a creature. So I I do think that's operative. Which I I would also say, I think the second layer to that in their psyche is, of course, the story of the Exodus. Pharaoh had dominion over them. Um, And that's, of course, the image when he keeps talking about slavery and freedom that he's pointing them back to also. Yeah. Love it. It's good. And the only way this dominion gets inverted back to its proper form is if God himself places him under the dominion of death, Mm -hmm. which is exactly what Jesus does, Mm -hmm. thereby breaking its power because he resurrects from the dead. Yeah. The true, the true Adam, the second Adam is the one who reverses sin's dominion over us. Mm -hmm. That's good. We just did that together, guys. We just filled out that question together. Wow. The gospel. It's great. Courtney, it was such a joy to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I want to tell our listeners, hey, if you're not familiar with Courtney's work, then check out something she's already done or go ahead and pre-order or check out In View of God's Mercies, The Gift of the Gospel in Romans coming out February 2022. Uh, Courtney, is there anything for TGC Women's that you want me to draw attention to here? Anything that you want to point out? That's a great question, Kyle. Thank you. Yes, we have our women's conference. Jen will be speaking at it um, in June of 2022, and registration is open. It's called Remember Your Joy. We're going to be looking at seven salvation stories in the Old Testament, and we would love to see you there. Love it. I love that. Love the Gospel Coalition. Love what you guys are up to. In our next episode, we're going to explore what it means to be slaves to righteousness in Romans 6, 15 through 23. We hope you'll check it out. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Grace and peace.